And now, would you pray with me? O good and gracious Spirit of God, I ask for your patience and for your peace today. We talk about grief. How can that not be emotional and painful? And so, God, give us the peace. Give us the patience. Let us turn towards ourselves as we meditate on you. Amen. All right, so last week, as we went through our course through emotionally healthy spirituality, we were asked to consider, am I willing to be broken so I might be able to see God's presence and strength in my life? Now today, we're going to focus in on a particular form of brokenness that comes through grief, and we're going to see how can this brokenness perhaps be a particular kind of grace and healing. So I'd like to start with a simple definition of grief, and I do this because if there's any indictment I want to make against our culture as a chaplain, as someone who walks in the shadows of death, it's that we have very, very few rituals to guide us through grief. So I want to explain that grief is very simply our emotional response to a perceived loss, an upcoming loss, or a loss that we have already felt. And it may not necessarily be over a person, it could be over a thing, it could be over a job, it could be over your financial security. Grief is simply our emotion when what we love, what we value, or what we find important is threatened and gone. So, with that, I'd like to uh, use one of the resources that we chaplains at Mayo Clinic like to use to explain how we progress through grief. We start with this first phase that we'll just call numbness. Now that is summarized by the statement, oh no, 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 not me, no, 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 no. Um, and you can see this outlined in your insert, and there's several uh, feelings that are associated with and needs that we might have. Now, when we think of numbness, we might think of the five stages of grief and think about it as denial. And, you know, we tend to think of that as dismissively, oh, so-and-so is just in denial, they'll get over it. We seem to think of it as some sort of a remedial stage of grief. I'm here to tell you it is tremendously important. It's important because it protects us for just a moment. It's a moment's grace so that we're not crushed by what news has come our way. I think of an email my dad sent me five years ago. Mom has cancer, pancreatic cancer. Not in the mood to talk, we'll talk later. Numbness hits me and says, Mom had, well he must be talking about his mom, my grandma. He must be talking about someone who's older and ready to have cancer and die. And that was of course not true. I knew better, but I needed that so much in part because I had a Christian education board meeting coming up in 20 minutes. I had, I had to move on. There were things that needed to be due, so numbness comes so we can drive home 
so we can get safe, so we can continue to process. Numbness is a grace to us, and it lasts sometimes for months. It's not a problem until you stay there. Now, I'd like to, as we look at this numbness, start our exploration through Job. Now, setting the scene, Job was having a party at his brother's house. And one by one, these messengers start coming. Hey, Job, thieves came and stole a significant portion of your wealth. Then some other servant comes and says, oh, and by the way, the stuff that the thieves didn't steal, literal fire from heaven came down and burned it all up. And then yet another servant came and said, your ten kids were at a party together. A storm blew through. They're all dead. Whew. One afternoon, Job responds in Job 1, starting at verse 20. At this, Job tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That seems like a muted reaction. Um, as I look through Job as a chaplain, someone who sees grief, Job is numb. He's clinging to something. The full weight of what's just happened hasn't hit him yet. And so then, a little while later, painful sores, some people translate that as boils overtake him. So he basically sits in a ditch and has pot shards and performs surgery on himself, trying to relieve the pressure of these boils. Gosh, it's hard to not take that personally. And in that moment, after his friends have sat with him for seven days in silence, you can see in your bulletin what Job had to say, and I'm just going to go through a little piece of it. May the day of my birth perish. The night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn into darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. And it continues through several excruciating verses. This is actual lament. This is pain coming home. This is what we will call disorganization now. Boy, what a very clinical term. It's disorganization. This is question of why me, honestly? Why has this happened? And in your bulletins, you'll see, again, these very nicely laid out feelings and needs. Hmm. That seems so very nice, but in truth, this disorganization comes as a storm. It's like each one of these feelings, if you imagine glass in a tornado keeps hitting you and striking you, one comes by, then another, then another, then the other one comes back, there's no order, there's no predicting it. It is chaos. That is grief. That is 
a storm. We really don't get to move past this for a while. This question of why me as needs come and go, as feelings disruptively assert themselves. We really don't get to move past this for quite a while. We say that um, you might vacillate between numbness and disorganization for about a year. A year going through this. Though it loses some of its potency over time, you're not ready to move past the storm for a long, long time. Now, we have to feel these emotions. And Job's friends, I think, when they arrived, did a good job. You know the friends. They came and sat with him for seven days of silence. And then it said, oh, man, they did great until they opened their mouths. Yeah, they tried to fix it for him. Um, to quote these wonderful, helpful friends, um, Eliphaz in uh, verses listed up there, uh, suffering has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Zophar, <laughs> for you say my conduct is pure and I am clean in God's sight. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You deserve what you're getting. You deserve more. You know, this is a good time for us to meditate on original sin and talk about how everyone deserves every mean, nasty, awful, ugly thing that comes your way. I hope that's helped with your grieving. Um, and by the way, we already know from the first parts of Job, the whole reason this is happening is because he is righteous. They're testing how righteous he is. So far, keep your mouth shut. And then finally, the worst, uh, Bildad. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children sinned against him, he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If your kids sinned and they died, God got them. That is appalling. And believe it or not, there's some people that practice that kind of theology. As a six-year-old, I was diagnosed with diabetes. As a young Christian, people led me to figure out what sin I had committed that had made me deserve diabetes, so that if only I confess it, I will be cured. This stuff is out there. Now, they're looking for a reason. Maybe they think they're helpful. But where Job's friends get into trouble here is that they have this ridiculous worldview that, sin, that God sends suffering always to those who deserve punishment. Now, to them, whenever you suffer, therefore, you deserve it. Now, Job followed suit. He started debating his righteousness, debating this and saying, well... Fine, if I deserve it, God should come and appear before me. I need to be tried in a court. And in his emotionally weakened state, 
he's drug into this. And it might feel to the friends that they're helping him come to some kind of resolution. But this is in fact cruel, not grief. What Job needs, what people in the storm need is grief, is grieving, is emotion, not pat answers. God famously appears to challenge Job and, reduce, and rebuke his three friends at the end of the book of Job. In God's response to Job's friends, we see that Job is not unrighteous and that suffering does not always equal punishment. And I learned from a rabbi friend, Job and the theology of suffering presented there gives us a message that humans are not intended for suffering. We are intended for delight. In um, God's dealing with Job, we see that uh, God is upset with Job because he can't understand, we cannot understand the reason behind every loss and that this willingness to demand an accounting is far inferior to simply sitting with your grief. We need to act in mourning. We need to feel the storm. So then what are we to do? Clearly, this is wrong. Um, we need to listen to our grief. I'm called very regularly into rooms for people that are grieving, they're scared, they're worried they're going to die or someone has died, and the expectation is sometimes that I make the tears go away. That is not productive. We need to learn to listen to grief. We need to make friends with tears that sting our cheeks and the snot that goes down our lip. That, that is the face of grief and we need to indulge in it. So even when the storm is raging, it's an important thing to remember that there's a power in that storm. Grief is another word for remembering something or someone who's important to us once they're gone. So this grief that you're feeling isn't a pity party. It's remembering, it's the cost of remembering someone or something you love once it's gone. You know, I'm surprised by how hard people fight grief. Sometimes it's appalling, like Job's friends. I've also heard around the deathbed, why are you crying, child? You know they're in heaven. That is an affront to grief. I've also heard you know, little Timmy, you know you need to be brave for daddy. He doesn't want to see tears right now. That's also harmful. Other ways seem perhaps a little bit more peaceable. They feel like coping. I once had a seminary professor who talked about her aunt. Her aunt regularly was made sick regularly went to the hospital, and they developed something of a routine that, okay, well, Auntie is in the hospital, time to get the puzzles and get a few books, get a few games, things to occupy her time, and that seemed to do great for Auntie. And so the professor loaded up all the books, took them in, sat them down, and started to unpack all of the stuff for Auntie. 
But she didn't seem very interested, and this was at first distressing. Why aren't you playing with your books? Until Auntie turned and asked very plainly, very simply, do you think my surgery is going to hurt? This may have felt like coping, this desire to give a distraction. But the truth of the matter is, is that we need to be aware of the difference between coping and distracting. Uh, if you want to fill in your bulletin inserts, coping requires your awareness of the pain of loss. Distractions help us to remain functional while avoiding the pain of grieving. So, the distractions are important, they serve their purpose, but sometimes they're good and bad. You know, there's things like TV or music, games and books, those are distractions. There's drugs, that's a, not a good distraction. Overeating and alcohol, not a good distraction. Reading is a wonderful distraction, but they serve a function of turning us away from our interior life, which turns us away from grief. Now, sometimes we need a break, and I'm not going to deny that, but that's not all that we need. Eventually, the stuff that we refuse to feel starts to tumble out in strange ways. Um, I remember when I was still grieving the loss of my mother. Um, she had died just six months ago uh, at this point, and I started to become obsessed with the idea that Grace was going to die. It didn't make any sense, but that was something that I believed. And so I called her one evening while I was driving home from Iowa, and she didn't pick up her phone. I called again, she didn't pick up her phone. For 20 to 30 minutes, I called her, and she didn't pick up her phone. I was so concerned that clearly she had died. Clearly something terrible had happened. I contemplated calling the police to go to her apartment to see where she was. <sighs> I had stopped grieving. I'd become distracted with my work, of, with being a chaplain. I'd become distracted with hanging out with friends. I'd turned away. What I needed was coping. What I needed was to let those storming emotions find a home. Things like prayers of lament, can give voice to your fear. You can pray. We have rituals of mourning. We meditate, we can sit in silence, we can enjoy solitude, all to let this storm that we are in speak to us. When I started to feel things again, I Notice that it helped me to explore what my loss meant to me. It lets you know what you need to focus on as you really feel it. It shows you what's important as you grieve. You know, when I present this material to kids, one of the things I like to do is talk about the person that you have lost as a tree. And the tree is very important. You build your life around the tree, but then a storm comes and the tree is gone. Now, the tree might 
be gone forever. It truly is, but that doesn't mean that the tree is no longer purposeful. Underneath the stump of that tree is a complicated, delicate root structure that gives fertility to the land of your life, that gives stability to the very ground you sit on. You start to realize that even after someone has died, you still have a connection with them. And so what that means is that we can start to fill in the tree with the parts of our life that we like. We can have our house and travel, get the dog that you've been waiting to get, um, enjoy your life. And because you know what, it's my life, it's my fantasy, I have a TARDIS, I can do a time travel, it's, it's what I want. But it's all not threatened and gone because the tree is gone. But even though the tree is gone, even though the sky seems so naked without the tree, it's still doing its work. It's still giving me a place to live. And so it's an illustration that acceptance is not about just the knowing about the permanence of loss. It means learning how to remain connected to who you have lost. Um, yeah, it's to say you're in acceptance without realizing your connectedness still. To say I've just accepted the fact that they're never coming back and now I'm done grieving. Ha! Um, it's a bit like exiting a plane before it's gotten all the way to the terminal. You're almost there, but you're going to fall, it's going to be painful, and then people are going to need to take care of you. Acceptance is about remembering the connectedness. So, to appreciate what we have been left and who the people are to us once they've died, it's important to remember to be thankful to the people who laid the path for us. Now, there's, there's something I would be remiss if I didn't talk about. I hear this verse all of the time at funerals, and it is a good verse, but we hear it incorrectly. Um, if we go to the first Corinthians verse, there we are. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hear that verse, and I hear people talk about it, and they use it as permission to dismiss the storm, dismiss the grief, be done with it, and that is not its purpose. This verse talks about how there's a particular sting to death, that is wrapped up into sin, and it's wrapped up through a complicated relationship to the way people understand the law, but what this verse is inviting us into is to see that the sting of death, with whatever sins we attach to it, can be viewed through the resurrection of Christ, that death can be redeemed even before the resurrection so that death doesn't have a defeating victory over us, but instead can be a teaching, a tool, a friend to us. So, if we take the resurrection seriously, we move into our final step as printed in our bulletin, 
the step of um, reorganization. This can be our final disposition towards death. Yes, it is me. This tragedy is struck, this death is upon me, the separation is at hand, and life moves forward. Now, grief helps us to move forward. So I'd like to go back to Job for a second. Um, after he has his conversation with God and his friends are sent away, he does something remarkable. He, he has a conversation with God after which God restores everything that he'd lost. And from Job 42, 13 through 15, and Job also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter was named Jemima, the second, uh, Keziah, the third, Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Um, I wanted to focus in on the inheritance and the fact that only the daughters are named. I read this as a chaplain. I read this as a chaplain who knows that in the era in which Job was written, women didn't receive an inheritance, and it wasn't as important to name them. It's almost as if Job, grieving and accepting the lessons from his loss, being redeemed through his losses, isn't going to take his children for granted anymore. He's going to pour out inheritance upon the daughters who normally wouldn't get it. He's going to specifically remember the daughters. I wonder if that means maybe he took his daughters for granted a little bit. And now suddenly grief has taught him a better lesson. Grieving allows us to teach our heritage to the next generation. One of the things that really is tremendous everywhere I go, at every deathbed, what I hear over and over and over again is the search for the meaning. Did my life have meaning? Am I going to pass something on to my children that's worthwhile, to my friends that they can remember and be blessed by. Grief is the way we receive the meaning that they want to give us. Grief is that reception of heritage and then taking the heritage we've received and passing it on to others. You know, I live in the constant shadow of grief, and that's hard. And it's hard for me to now turn to the question of how, if we accept grief and we let it teach us something about ourselves, how can it be a spiritually enlarging part of our life? Because that is so personal. No grief is like another because no loss is like another. So I suppose I'll share my grief and the grief of some others. I remember my mother and what heritage shall I pass on because I grieve her death? Will I break down barriers the way she did? 
Will I inherit the strong work ethic and the care for others? Shall I remember that she died early and that I have the same genetic mutation as she does? Shall I remember that if I follow in her footsteps, I have 23 years left to live? Shall I remember her for her sense of humor? This is a cup that she gave me. A morning without coffee is like sleep, agreed. <laughs> Shall I remember the cruelty I poured upon her while I was a teenager? Yes. Yes to all of that. Um, if I can embrace the total grief the sadness that comes whenever I remember mom, the slight bit of missing her at every single turn, that means that nothing is taken for granted. I see sunrises and they are beautiful. I run towards the pain of others because I saw how she did the same and I've made it my own. I sit and have long conversations because I only have a few precious hours after work every day to spend with my wife. Be ashamed to watch TV that whole time. I take nothing for granted because I grieve. And I'd like to think that because I grieve, because I remember this heritage, I, I can be the authentic me that God called me to be. Grief reminds us to let go of the distractions. Every family I've watched bury an estranged relative tells me to let go of my grudges. Every baptism as a baby breathes their last shows me the heartbreaking ways that grace is present in times of loss and of pain. If we could just hold on through the storms, through the disorganization, feel it, embrace it rather than push it away, then we can turn it into the roots, the life, the fertile existence that can propel us forward. It can, if we can hold on, God, will eventually show us the grief's meaning and the deepest pains and how they can make us kind. I saw another example of bereaved parents. They want to keep going to the hospital to volunteer for years. They like to help parents that only they can understand. They want to show love to the staff that cared for their child. All of this because of their desire to be close to their baby through grief has been transformed into service for others because they can no longer be close to their child. I think of families who tend to people in memory units who, who are suffering from dementia, who are journeying through Alzheimer's, and for grieving the identity that these mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters have lost. 
they turned in kindness to them, saying, you may not be able to carry your identity anymore, but I can. I can give you a moment's kindness. I can give you a moment's peace by just whispering sweet things into your ear so you can fall asleep. You may not understand what I'm saying, but you recognize my voice and it comforts you. And I also know that there are griefs that are worse than just simple death. There are griefs that are more painful, that are harder to untangle, storms that are much stronger. But church, we can grieve together. We can watch the storm begin to fade until eventually it becomes a reorientation and a redemption. John asked, oops, asked what we need to confess last week. I might go a little further. Rather than what do we need to confess, when we grieve, we ask, what do you need to remember? I believe that as a human being, we remember so much pain and loss, but we refuse to let it be grief. But what if we weathered the storm until all the pain turned us into kind, loving, godly, present, transforming, considerate people? What if we looked for the reminders of our grief and took them as a calling? This is the shirt I wore when I watched my mom die. I'm always a little sad when I wear it. I know people that talk about they go to a particular place where their loved one used to go and they're always a little sad. But by God, going there, they're spurned on to do the best that they can to be godly, to take the heritage and move. Church, if your grief is able to transform you, to enlarge your spirit, how many lives can your grief change if you let it, if you become present, if you grieve honestly, who will be blessed because you can grieve with them? Now, I said truthfully that uh, I, I don't believe that we have a lot of cultural help to walk through grief, so I've got a few resources available to consider. First in your printout, if, if you need some help getting your hands around, just generally, what have you lost? What do you need in your time of loss? You can check that uh, in my uh, insert. There's also a few websites. I'll also mention that we have a uh, turnstile in back with several care notes that deal with topics of how faith can help when bad things happen, end-of-life concerns, um, losing someone close, uh, caring for yourself when someone else is ill, when death comes unexpectedly, finding your way after the death of the spouse, walking with God through grief and loss, just to name a few. We have these resources for you to help you grieve, but please don't just read them and get the information. Take them as a roadmap and then find someone to journey with you through grief. Find someone who can help you through the storm in silence and in support and then rejoice with you when you find the meaning behind it all.
that is only yours to discover. So with that, friends, can we pray? O oh good, O oh gracious, O oh mysterious God, we pray together because we grieve. We grieve because we remember. So God, give us strength as we grieve. May we be unflinching. Whatever we have left ungrieved, Lord, in gentleness, may you restore our hearts that we might feel it. Might you grant us a vision that we might give it a direction to go. And as we transform our pain into kindness and into emotional health, into spiritual well-being, I pray, God, may you give us our mission to go forward as wounded healers, as kind givers, and as the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.